Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., you are actually in New York City today, where you have a you, <laughs> yes. you were there, and you experienced a <laughs> yes. story. We're going to hear about it in just a second. This is the first time we've ever done this where you're actually remote. I know I don't get to look at your uh, I don't know incredibly good looking face. face. That's how yeah. I would describe no, it. No, that's totally the words I was going to use. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I'll email you the words that you you should use next <laughs> Thank time. Thank you. It's not in front of me, so it's not coming to me immediately. <laughs> it's the only reason I didn't say that. <laughs> hey JJ, before we begin, I found out something that I don't know if you know because you we actually study the numbers yeah. and we study how many copies of building a story brand sell every week. Yep. And we chart those and that's part of our dashboard. And we were confused because three audio copies sell for every hardback. <laughs> yes. Which is a very yes. stra- very strange statistic. <laughs> it's normally about half an audio book for every one hardback. Yeah. And guess what I found out what's going on. What's happening? Audible is actually giving them away for free. <laughs> 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 well, it was a blow well, to my ego. No, that means that they actually believe in the book. That's kind of awesome. I love that. Well, th- no, and here it gets even worse. They're giving away all books for free. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe people are picking your book for free. No, I just really thought people liked my voice. I thought I'm the next Marvin Gaye. <laughs> And well, this is yeah. this is baby making music that is in the form well, of a four I hour don't... and fifty five minute audio book. <laughs> oh, okay, I mean, if you, I don't know if I'd go that far, but okay, okay. Anyway, <laughs> so the way it works is you go to audibletrial.com slash storybrand. You start your trial. You choose building a story brand as your audio book, and you get to listen to my what I think is really an incredibly uh, sexy voice for four hours. And 55 minutes. <laughs> well, I love that people are getting the book for free. I, I, I love that it's getting out there no matter how it gets out. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I just have mixed feelings about it. I feel the way I do about libraries. Yeah. You know, as a writer, the idea that you can go to a library and rent this book and not pay anything for it, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is concerning. This is concerning to me. I don't know. I love it. I love that people are getting the book and they're making differences in their business. That's amazing. JJ, today on the podcast, yes. we have a fighter pilot. I know. The need for speed. The need for speed. It's the first woman who has ever fought in combat flying a F-14. Yeah. She tells this story when she was 22 and a half years old. Her commander told her, you've gone as far as you possibly can, which you're like yeah. one in a million at this point. You're As far as you possibly can, we cannot let you fly the F-14 in combat because you are a woman. Oh, wow. And at 22 and a half, she did not take no for an answer. Unbelievable. And so the theme of today's podcast is times when you have not taken no for an answer I'm curious, yeah. do you have, and I know you do because we've already talked, you have a story in New York City about not taking I no do. for an answer. What happened What happened, like, what happened? yesterday? So my siblings and I, we decided a couple of years ago that when any of us turns 40, there's four of us, when any of us turns 40, we would go on a sibling trip, just the four of us, to celebrate turning 40. And so it was my brother's turn. For my 40th, we went to San Francisco and went on a wine tour. And so for his 40th, we decided to come to New York City. So we come to New York City and my brother, who basically is Chris Farley, like he absolutely, he looks <laughs> like him. He talks yeah. like him. He acts like him, loves Chris Farley and knows like every piece of trivia you can imagine about SNL. I said, well, what do you want to do when you come to New York? And he said, the only thing I want to do is go to SNL. 
go to a filming. And I said, well, that's actually, that's not really possible. <laughs> you have to get tickets like in August and then otherwise we're spending the night. And there was a huge storm in New York this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> Like it snowed, it was windy, there's power out all over the city. And we would have had to spend the night on the street in order to get tickets the next morning. Well, I decided that I was going to try to still give us the best chance possible because I was like, I want to make this happen for my brother. Like if I can do anything. So I booked a studio tour on Saturday of the NBC studios in New York, just so we could kind of be around that environment and see if there's anything that could happen. Cause they take you backstage and you go to like, see the Jimmy Fallon studio and the Lester Holt studio. And they were taking us to the SNL studio. So I put us in a position where we would be there on Saturday and figure something out. So we show up and we're hanging out and I just start hanging back and I start talking to the page that is <laughs> taking our tour. Was it Kenneth? No, I wish. That would have been <laughs> no. awesome. Her name, well, I won't say her name in case she gets in trouble for this. But we, so we're on a tour. I'm just talking to her and, you know, just asking about different stuff and about tickets and shows. And I'm telling her to like ask my brother questions, some trivia questions. And she's asking him SNL trivia questions. And my brother is like correcting her on the answers because <laughs> I wanted to show he knows what he's talking about. So we go through the whole tour. We're talking. And I just say, you know, is there any way any kind of standby ticket or anything. And I just kept pushing and she was like, well, we have these that are kind of like standby, but they're even less than standby of the people who stood by this morning and last night. So you can show up. It's first come, first serve. Is there's any way there's anything available, then you'll be in line. So I said, great. So we go and we go to this other office, get those things. And we had bought Broadway tickets for that night just because it was like, well, we're not going to go to SNL. But we said, we'll give up the Broadway tickets if we can get on SNL. So we end up showing up about an hour before she told us we had to be there. And we put my brother in the front of the line. And once again, we're like flirting with the pages and like talking it up. My brother is entertaining everybody in the room. And we end up getting right at the front. We're right there. They let everybody with tickets in. Then they let all the standby people in who had like spent the night in line and everything. And we're all there. And we're standing there and they go, okay, we can take one more. And we put my brother at the front of the line and he ends up going in and getting the very last seat for the dress rehearsal for Saturday Night Live, which is actually like the longer show because they do all of these skits and then cut for the later show. So he ends up seeing it, a lifelong dream all because we were like no we're gonna make this happen like we're not gonna take no for an answer we're gonna like do everything we can put ourselves in a position you just believed you believed in your heart (laughs) yeah and the other three of us didn't get on and we didn't even care so we ended up like leaving and running down the street a few blocks to the theater and we ended up getting into hello dolly and like sat in our seats right as the light was going down so we made our show he made his show we met up afterwards and we all just couldn't stop laughing we were like giggling because we just couldn't believe. He had been saying the whole time, all I want to do, if I do one thing, I just want to get on SNL. And I kept telling him the whole time, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. But like for me, I was like, we're making this happen. (laughs) I am figuring out a way to make it happen. And somehow beyond all like possible reason we made it happen and my brother got to see charles barkley host that's, <laughs> saturday oh, night live yeah. i haven't seen that episode yet yeah, yeah. that's awesome man so i can't wait it to was see pretty it. amazing that and being the first female fighter pilot i think are are the same 
I don't even really? know. I don't even want to play this interview because yeah. it's going to be less inspirational. <laughs> less. We're going to learn yeah. less. Yeah, potato, tomato, really. potato, tomato. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, we really do have an incredible conversation. She talks about a lot more than just not taking no for an answer. Her book is yeah. called Fearless Leadership, and we dive into it. One of my favorite interviews, man, I really hope we can have her back again and again. So awesome. Anyway, JJ, we're going to cut right to it. Here's my interview with Carrie Lorenz. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited. You're one of the more sought-after speakers on the speaking circuit right now, and you're helping a lot of folks. And I, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit intimidated. I watched your video, and just knowing that you land those planes on aircraft carriers, or at least you, you once did for a living, <laughs> oh, just unbelievable. And you're, what is it called, a sizzle reel for speaking? That's probably one of the better ones I've ever seen. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pretty demanding environment, that aircraft carrier landing business. Yeah, I mean, talk about an institution. How many people are working on it on the average aircraft carrier? Well, so the average aircraft carrier has about 5,000 people on board. So, the, I mean, if you think about like a big high-rise building, a corporation that's full of people, it's about like that, right? Yeah, it is. And it's crazy because even the top of that flight deck is known as one of the most dangerous industrial work sites in the world. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing and what's such an extraordinary leadership challenge about working in that environment, no matter if you're working in food service or finance or admin or in the supply chain, the operation side of it, it has an extraordinarily high rate of turnover hmm. simply because of the nature of the business. So about every nine months, 50% of that population turns over. And is that strategically baked into the systems? Or well, do you just have people saying, I don't want to work here anymore? I, I'm, I'm imagining if you're in the military, you can't say, well, I quit. I want to go get a job somewhere else. I mean, how do they bake that into the system? It, it's just part of the operations tempo. Uh -huh. So although it's planned for, and we know that that's going to happen, and and there might be a little bit of flex in that based on deployment schedules, uh, et cetera, but it's not, it doesn't change that much. It's a constant leadership challenge, no doubt. But what it really, really does is it forces, because it is such an, a demanding environment, even just outside of that cockpit, it forces you to be very, very clear on what it is you're trying to achieve and what your purpose is. Well, I'd like to talk about that because that's a huge part of leadership, of course, and it's a lot of what we talk about. We help people market their companies. We help people communicate mm -hmm. to both internal and external communication, but it's all about clarity. If people don't know what problem you can solve, they will never be drawn to your business or your organization. But there's also this idea of the story-driven leader and a leader having to stand up and say, look, here's the story, here's why the story matters, and here's your role in that story. And you guys on these aircraft carriers, and, and a lot of people think, well, you know, you're a fighter pilot, so you're the rock star who just kind of hangs out with buddies in the mess hall, and then you go fly your plane. You're in charge of like 200 people. If you run a division of a company. You're not just a pilot. Isn't, isn't that right? I mean, you have to lead a group. Right. And that's one of the big differentiators between uh, Navy and Marine Corps fighter pilots and, and pilots and other services that unfortunately for us, or fortunately, you may say, we have to have a full-time grown-up job, right? An adult job in addition to that flying thing. So being responsible for managing, uh, whether it's maintenance or admin or safety, we have to figure out how do we do that? How do we support that? And whether it's in our role or in your organization's role, 
you know, vision is a huge thing. And that's, you know, what do fearless leaders do day in and day out? Well, we have to marshal our people and lead that whole team to a better place than where it started. So there's no question in my mind, whether you're sitting in the cockpit of a $45 million fighter jet or you're leading your organization, that you have to do that work of leadership with a bold vision. And having a clear vision, one that inspires and will align your team, it's table stakes. Otherwise, you have everybody working up, you know, showing up. They work really hard. They're very well intended, but they're not all headed in the same direction. They don't actually know what success is supposed to look like. Are you in a position as a fighter pilot or were you in a position to actually establish the vision or is that coming down from the White House or how did you guys work in such a large organization that you could turn around to your 200 people and say, this is the vision that I want us to accomplish? Right. So that's a great question because we were in a position pretty much like mm, everybody else, but say perhaps a CEO who is also still generally beholden to stakeholders' yeah, wishes. Right. We're responsible for carrying out a vision or a strategy that's above us. But what we have to then be able to do is when we understand our purpose and you know as as i know we've talked about that the importance of clarity and that if you're not clear on what it is you're trying to accomplish you're going to confuse right clarity wins clarity builds trust it's a great piece of everything so with great leadership on an aircraft carrier the folks are able to go hey listen here's our number one purpose we're clear that our number one purpose is the safe launching and recovering of airplanes hmm. 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year everything else, it's just details. Hmm. Now that sounds like, come on, it can't be that simple, but actually it has to be because it is such a sophisticated environment. That's very volatile, that there's a lot of uncertainty in that system. We have to be able to focus in on that so that then Everything we do aligns to supporting the success of the safe launching and recovering of airplanes. So it allows your team to really go for it. And it helps give your teammates focus. And at the end of the day, focus is power. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and if you dilute your focus, you're diluting your power. It's interesting because we were just having a conversation. You know, we're a growing company and we'll probably double in revenue this year. And we're hiring all these sales folks. So we're studying a lot of how other sales teams works. We're, we're, you know, mm -hmm. we're flying people around to interview people. And at the end of the day, we had to say, hey, we could actually research all day long. But the bottom line is the success of a sales organization depends on sales. You know, so when you talk about winning a war or winning a battle, the successful launch and recovery of airplanes is the point. I think a lot of organizations, even though that sounds so simple, you're absolutely right. We, we lose focus on what is actually the most important thing. Okay, I want to get into your book because you've got some phases of leadership that we all need to understand. The book is called Fearless Leadership, and you talk about three characteristics of a fearless leader, courage, tenacity, and integrity. First, courage. And one of the things that you say in the book is that a leader is going to encounter fear, that that's natural, but you have to keep going even though you're afraid. Is that part of courage? Oh, absolutely. And I've seen over and over again how just no matter how talented people are, no matter how well developed their skill sets may be, in order to effectively lead a team, 
all of that is lost when you're crippled by your fear and courage, because in my mind, it's that flip side of fear is that first element. And if you don't have that, if you're not able to control your own story in your mind, what your mindset is, you're never going to be able to identify those possibilities, the opportunities, or even tamp down those voices telling you, you can't do it. That might be internal or it could be external pressures even. Could you take us to a time when, you know, something happened or a mission didn't go the way you wanted or, you know, I don't even care what you were late to work or something because your alarm didn't go off. And you had two stories happening in your brain. One was a doomsday scenario. The other was, I mean, forgive me for using the metaphor, but you were going into a tailspin, right? And you had to combat these narratives and, and what you did and what happened? Absolutely. Well, the list would be long and endless on that. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now we just have to figure out which one. <laughs> which one do you want to tell? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'll, I'll give you a probably a pretty relatable example. When I started flight school, the Department of Defense had in place a law that prohibited women from flying in combat. Really? So, How long ago was that? Do you mind me asking? When was that? Uh, so that was 1991. So Clinton changed that. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So I started flying even, and I wanted to fly fighters. I wanted to go for that because there's a pecking order, right? And there's only a very small percentage, only the best of the best, the top couple percent of, of people usually get even the opportunity to try to head that direction. So when I started flight school, even though I knew the law was still in place, I was hoping that if I performed really well and I was at the top of my class, that if the opportunity presented itself, that they would say, absolutely, you're at the top of the game. We can't do this without you, right? <laughs> right. Uh, please, please become a part of our exclusive flying club. You know, we want you to be a, a fighter pilot. We want you to be a naval aviator. And this takes about two years. So it's two years of nonstop studying, mm. flying, enormous amount of stress and pressure. And I was almost at the end of this pipeline when I got called into my commanding officer's office. And for those of you who are not familiar with the military, this is not a good thing. This is like getting called into the CEO's office. Yeah, there's not a lot of good reasons you should be in there. No, no. You're trying to go through your mental Rolodex thinking, did I do something bad? Like, did I, was I step out of line this weekend or something? No, I don't think so. But they proceeded to tell me, not only was he in the office, but a bunch of people on speakerphone, that since the law had not been lifted yet, there was no room for me left in the Navy. Hmm. So I could either get out of the Navy completely with no additional time, or I could go to a non-flying job, which did I want. Hmm. Now, instantly, like you get that fear that just paralyzes your body and you're not sure if you're going to throw up, pass out, or not have any words to say. And I was like, well, this doesn't even make sense because there are women flying other airplanes, right. just not combatant airplanes. So I just said, you know, those are two really interesting options. Can I have a little bit of time to think about it? And they grumbled, you know, like old people do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, cause they're like 45. So in my oh, mind, they're 20, like yeah, fairly exactly, relevant, yeah. right? Like they're old people. And they said, yes. Okay. So I went back into this brief that I just gotten pulled out of and I'm trying not to cry because mm. I know it's not going to be one of those really graceful, like 3D IMAX cries where the tear comes down and you're like, oh, bless her heart. She's so sad. Right, yeah. Oh, no, it's going to go from zero to like full on ugly noise crying. 
But what you might not know is there's no crying in fighter pilot world, right? <laughs> that in baseball. <laughs> That's right. There's no crying in baseball and there's no crying in fighter pilot world. That's right. <laughs> you know, as my whole back just slicks with sweat and I see the walls just closing in around me, mm. I start looking around the room and I realize the only reason I just had that conversation was that I dared to show up different. And that you were good. Yeah. I mean, that the only reason you have the conversation is like, you should be doing this. We got a problem. Right. Yeah. And, but it was because I dared essentially to show up female. And that conversation was not based on my performance at all. So I waited for that brief to be done, went back into the commanding officer's office, knocked on the door, walked in and just said, sir, with all due respect, I don't want to get out of the Navy and I don't want to go to a non-flying job. We need to find a third way. Wait, you said that to your commander? I did, which is in. not I standard. I mean, I was very... You're 22. Let's remind everybody, you're 22 mm -hmm. years old at this time? Probably 22 and a half. <laughs> so throw me that half year. I, I, you know, I'm not going to hijack this interview, but now I have so <laughs> many questions about your parents and your upbringing. I have so many questions that we're, I'm not going to hijack oh. the interview. But, but keep going, keep going. That's okay. That is amazing, Carrie. This says so much about you. Yeah. So, so he literally rocked back in his chair and his face, I couldn't tell if it registered horror or shock or what the heck did you just say to me? So I just said, thank you very much for your time. And I left, right? Because sometimes you actually do need to just throw it in there and run. You'll figure it out, but don't stick around for the hemming and the hawing and all that. And then it was crickets for about a week, a week and a half. And they brought me back in, same group on, on speakerphone, and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We went back and looked at the last five years of student aviators. So everybody that was going through the JET training program. Mm -hmm. And they said, we realize that you are actually at the top of the bunch. So here yeah. is what we are going to do. Um, assuming that for the next six weeks or so, you still continue to perform and you earn your naval aviator wings. When you do, we're going to cut you orders to stay here for 18 months, and you can teach everybody else how to fly and go live their dream job, right? To so all the other men. So now I can't go to the fleet, but I'm good enough to be an instructor to teach everybody else how to go live their dream, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. be a great contributor. So I thought, well, so you're saying I have a chance. Was that, was that part of their wanting to buy some time? They knew this rule would change? Or was it not that? They just knew they were in a pickle? Yes to both of those. Okay. Because they thought, well... Hopefully, Congress will work really quickly to lift that law. And in my mind, I'm like, right, because Congress works really fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, right? But you're at that fork in a road. You're at that place where, you know, if I say no, all my dreams, everything I ever wanted to do since I was a little kid, gone, mm -hmm. up in smoke. Yeah like that. Or you can get out of the Navy and say, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't meant to be, or I'll stay in, I'll just serve in a different area and always feel probably resentful towards the fact that why can other women fly And here? I was at the top, but because I was brave enough and bold enough to go down that path and performed well enough. And now I'm getting punished, mm -hmm. right? Like you'll always feel like that's not fair. So I just said, okay, like it's a big risk, but I'm going to go for it. So I showed up every single day and performed and shared and collaborated as if I was going to the fleet like one of the regular guys, like a, like a regular student. And I'll tell you what, that is not easy. At times it's exceptionally isolating and it can be paralyzing, but 
it's in those moments that I think differentiates people who say they really want something and yes, they're committed because it's working, even though it might be a little hard from those who, when the rubber meets the road and it is no longer fun at all, and it requires you to be gritty and stay committed and believe in not only yourself, but your dreams. And that somehow, some way you're willing to strip it all down and be vulnerable and write your own story. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Carrie Lorenz in just a moment. Before that, though, if you live in Dallas, Texas, or if you know somebody in Dallas, Texas, I'm coming to present for the first time my one hour keynote, How to Build a Story Brand. We're doing this on May 24th and tickets are available for 40 bucks you or any of your staff members can come and really learn the story brand seven part framework not only that we're going to have a great breakfast together we're going to spend an hour talking about the elements of a story and how you can use them to clarify your message then we're going to take a little break and we're going to spend another hour creating our one-liner a one-liner is one sentence that you can use to talk about your business that will have people wanting to engage. They'll be asking for your business card. They'll be wanting to schedule an appointment with you all in one sentence. You know, the goal is for 40 bucks, we want to make you 40,000 bucks and one sentence is going to be able to do it. If you love the story brand framework, if you love this podcast, if you want to hear more about it, this is a really inexpensive way to go. We will be in Dallas, Texas on May 24th. Come and bring your entire staff. We priced it so that you could bring your entire team. Go to storybrand.com slash Dallas, storybrand.com slash Dallas, and we'll see you soon. Really what you're talking about is strong internal locus of control versus external locus of control. In the sense that there's there's an external narrative that is being forced on you. Interestingly, it's a binary narrative, which is almost always a lie. And they're saying you can either do this or this. But there's something about the fearless leader, the people who accomplish a lot in life, who say, well, that's an interesting take on life, but that's not the story I'm going to live. There are a million stories. Here's one that works for me and I think will also work for you. They're able to not let the external story dictate everything. And the internal story saying, no, no, this is actually Mm -hmm. another option that could benefit us both. Great leaders do that. I don't know if you're wired that way or or if you learn it over time. I would imagine it's a little bit of both. But, you know, we just see it over and over. Absolutely. And it's the, the challenge to that. And I think what can feel unrelatable sometimes to some people when we look at people in our minds who are great leaders or amazing high performers, whether it's an Olympic athlete, a spiritual leader, you know, a powerful executive or somebody who's running some super impactful program for the community. We think that somehow they're really different than us, that they have, well, they must have been better resourced or they must have had a better family or, you know, they're just lucky. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, one of the big differentiators, I think, is that, you know, finding a third way isn't just about being stubborn, but being able to do this is that there's that little part of you that has a bias to act. And even when it feels uncomfortable. Even when you have, I always say that for me, it's that verp coming up the back of my throat, right? Like (laughs) there's not enough food, popcorn or whatever I can shove down to make that start coming up when 
I'm scared or mm. I'm worried about not being successful at something. But there are a couple of things that start to mitigate that. When you understand what your purpose is and what your mission is and the potential of a positive impact of you taking action can have on somebody outside of yourself, it changes that because no longer are you depending on willpower or the force of the strength of your own personality, right? So that, that locus of control as well. In my mind, you know, there was that little piece of me where I'm like, I don't, golly, I do not understand this. I don't understand the drama around this conversation. I don't, and this isn't about a political, although part of it apparently was, unbeknownst to me, a political conversation about women in combat, because in my mind, the jet doesn't know the difference. <laughs> right. Nor does and, the enemy. <laughs> nor, right. And the wasps had flown, you know, over a million hours in the 40s. And yet somehow, very ceremoniously, mm. we asked them to, to go back home. Don't ever speak of this, you know, your millions of hours of flight hours. Oh, wow, I didn't know that story. Yeah, they were the only reason that the women that stepped in, the 1,100 women that stepped in to do flight training are the only reasons that we were successful in, in World War II because of the air campaign, because they wow. flew over a million flight hours here to support everybody training uh, in deployment, ferrying aircraft, everything. But wow. as soon as that engagement was done, all of those women were told, go home, be good moms, don't ever speak of this again, tuck away your stuff, your service is done. There's something else that I'm hearing here, Carrie, and I wonder if you can speak to it. When you went into that room with your commander and the commander presented you with a narrative that you didn't like, it sounded like the, some of the resistance coming from that was because you had preloaded a narrative in your own brain and it was conflicting with the narrative that they were giving you, which, which to me says... Is that a point? Is, is there something to learn there that we need to preload that you thought I'm going to be a fighter pilot and you kept heading in that direction? And then when they said, actually, that's not the story, you're either going to get out of the Navy or you're going to do something else. You went, wait, no, that's not I'm writing my story and that's not how this ends. Actually, it ends very differently. Uh, let's figure out how fate, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, how God, if you will, is going to work this thing through. But you had a preloaded narrative. Is it fair to say that? I think so. I mean, maybe without knowing, and I'm not saying like formally yeah, you sat and no, looked that's... at a mirror and lit a candle, but you know, something right. <laughs> in your brain happened when you were in high school. I'm not right, trying to get right. goofy. No, no, but I think it's an interesting theme uh, or an idea to dive into because again, I think this goes back to people thinking that people who do this or can step boldly or bravely into something feel no fear. Mm -hmm. And that's not it. It is you're able to get to this point of having just enough confidence. And I don't mean an abundance of confidence. All right. Because that people that delusional that arrogance, right? Just a fraction of enough confidence to still continue to consider the possibility. Mm. The what if? No. What if I dare to push back and I continue to show up? What if? Well, according to your book, that's not enough. We need something else. We need tenacity. You say on page 49, not everyone in life gets to run a business or lead a team, but in my years in the Navy and my years as a leadership consultant, I've noticed one trait that consistently separates those who just dream big from those who go out there and do big, the ability to drive and work hard. We interviewed uh, Scott Hamilton recently on the podcast just mm -hmm. before he went over to the Olympics, and he'll tell you every time, you know, I wasn't the most talented skater, certainly didn't have the body to be the most talented skater. I just outworked everybody. 
And I just, that, right. that gives me so much hope, you know, that because uh, I look around, I go, all these people are smarter than me, but they're, they're, you know, they're not going to get up earlier. <laughs> they're not going to work harder. That's right. <laughs> talk to me about tenacity. How important is that? Oh, it's critical. And it's funny because that's one of the things that I talk to my kids about all the time. I'm like, hey, it's okay. You can strive for not being the smartest one in the room, not be the strongest person on the team, but nobody should be able to outwork you. Mm. And that means it's going to come in a hard way. So for anybody, no matter what level you are are at, whether you're a successful uh, executive, you're somebody who's an entrepreneur who's just starting, or you're just trying to get your life figured out, just know that it takes courage and it takes that tenacity to keep striving and keep working hard when the shine wears off, right? When it's no longer fun and you wonder why are you showing up? But it's in the showing up day by day. It's those little tiny pieces that help you to continue to develop a bias for action. And it's that action, that going out and doing it, that when you get stuck, when you get waylaid, when you take that concrete block to the face and you think there's no way anybody else in this world has ever failed as big or publicly as I have, and I'm going to pull back. I'm going to shrink, right? I'm not going to play big. But it's in those moments that those little tiny bits of action are what actually help you develop confidence. As that confidence grows, so does your courage to act. So that's kind of where it's the dog chasing its tail, right? People are like, well, I'll tell you what, the one phrase I hate, and you may love it, and that's okay, we can have a difference of opinion on <laughs> yeah. it. I hate the fake it till you make it. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that's right, because I think people buy into that, or they know they're being inauthentic, so that they never push themselves just hard enough or fail big enough to have to get back up and figure out how can you stay tenacious? How can you develop resiliency so that you can own all of it? And that's the good and the bad. I don't like fake it till you make it either. I think there are too many people mm -hmm. when you say, hey, I'm not exactly competent at this, but I would like to be, will you help me? 90% of people oh. will. There's just no reason oh. to fake it. 90% of people will help you and they'll give you a shot. I know. I and then, know, you, and then and you get to be crazy. actually, you get to actually become competent and then you, you don't lose trust. Right. And if you can combine that competency with humility, mm. oh my gosh, it's yeah. like a magical potion, right? Yeah. Most of the people that you're talking to, I want to get back a little bit to tenacity here. Most of the people that call you for consulting are probably high achievers. However, you've got a, a small group of people listening to this podcast. This podcast tends to be a lot of high achievers. You get a small group of people who, and I don't like labels, but they see themselves as undisciplined people. They've given mm -hmm. up in some areas of their lives. They've given up on their weight. They've given up on their career. They've given up on all these kinds of things. The external narrative that has come at them, they bought into it. What do you say to that person? What are the baby steps that you would prescribe that they could actually start becoming and indeed change their identity the way they view themselves into a more disciplined person? So the one thing that I would share with them that I find to be successful, that I found it with high-performing executives that I coach, uh, with athletes. I was fortunate that I was a rower at Wisconsin uh, and a bunch of my friends all went on to be Olympic athletes in rowing, uh, which is a brutal, brutal sport. So yeah. you want to talk about, you know, tough psychology and discipline mindsets. At the end of the day, the difference between who you are and who you want to be is what you do, right? It's mm -hmm. found in mm -hmm. our daily routines. Hmm. Now we've all heard that, we've all seen it, and we nod our heads and say, yes, yes, yes. It's why everybody, you know, buys a bajillion different types of planners because they're convinced <laughs> that planner is going to be the thing that saves the day. Hmm. That's awesome. Great. Someday I might even put out a great planner and hopefully it'll be remarkably effective. However, until that day comes, 
the thing I find to be the most effective and the most impactful to get people focused and to start taking baby steps is you get a stack of post-it notes, just the little three inch by three inch post-it notes and a fat Sharpie marker. Yeah. And every day, write down your top three things. You don't get a mechanical pencil. You don't get a pen because I've seen war and peace on a post-it note. Like, hey, you said I could have a post-it note. I'm like, okay, clearly I need to be more specific here. So and then you put it where you can see it. So put it on the back of your phone, maybe on your laptop, on your dashboard. If you're, you know, you're in your car and you're shuffling kids for four hours a day or you're a commuter. And then start making those micro decisions that help you accomplish that. Think again, there's so much pressure, whether we all want that quick fix, right? We all mm-hmm. want the easy button. That, well, I just want that or I can't, you know, I don't have 60 days to do this. Well, maybe you don't, but you have today. And so if you can do one thing that gets you a little bit closer, if you just do one thing every day over the course of time, you will start to get out of your own way because you'll see you'll start seeing little bits of progress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the reasons so many people are not successful time and again with weight loss because they think of it as a number on a scale or as I'm a good person or I'm a bad person hmm. because of how, what shows up in that goofy number on the scale. Instead of, okay, here are the three things, you know, maybe today I want to eat five more plants, right? So instead of thinking about all the things you can't do, Think about all the things you can. What are four little things that you can do? And the way you start mentally, the mental dialogue, the story you start, your brain starts telling itself is more of what you're capable of instead of all the ways you're not meeting an expectation. I love it. Here's a business idea. Feel free to take it. You charge a hundred bucks for the Carrie Lorenz planner. You send a box that has one little thing of post-it notes and a Sharpie. And then a letter that just says, write down the three most important things, do it every day. I'll give you a hundred bucks back if it doesn't work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like it. I think it would be I, like I it. think it would work. You would certainly get a lot of publicity. But I think it would And work. you can keep the planner. <laughs> you can, yeah, you keep the post. Yeah, you keep the post note and the Sharpie. You get your hundred bucks back. But you gotta prove it didn't work. You gotta prove it didn't work. Okay. That's right. That's that, right. that speaks against your third thing, which is integrity. <laughs> so maybe you shouldn't do that. Page ninety six. Fearless leaders always hold themselves responsible responsible for doing the right thing, even when it means standing up to pressure, being a thorn in someone's side or inconveniencing themselves, doing the right thing. I think we're losing integrity in our country. I don't think it means what it means in the past. And and I think uh, just a lot of do and say whatever it takes to help yourself win, and it doesn't matter whether it's true or right. That narrative is kind of creeping into the American consciousness. How important is integrity? Well, it's critical. And I would agree with you. It's unfortunate that it's starting to permeate different aspects of our culture and our society. I will say, though, I am so fortunate and exceptionally blessed to work with such a large number of people that I think the overwhelming majority of people are seeing it and are also bothered by it. But I think that most people don't know what to do about it. At the end of the day, there are a lot of people out there who are doing great work. And I think it's, you know, folks like you who have a great platform and to keep the conversation going that we don't normalize it. Uh, Because at the end of the day, I don't care what you're doing, but cutting corners never leads to excellence. 
Yeah. You know, I struggle with this a little bit uh, with some of the social media right now with even having conversations with my kids, you know, that it's, hey, what you're seeing is to get that one Instagram shot, that girl had to take 250 pictures. That is not what she looks like in real life, right? That it's this weird normalization of things that aren't true or accurate that we have to keep calling it out. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. I can't advocate for it. My mind is blown that as much discussion that does take place about it, that there are still plenty of people who take gigantic missteps and are afforded golden parachutes after they destroyed companies. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it's legal. Destroyed companies, destroyed families, destroyed economies. Everything. All of it, yeah. I don't understand it. So all I can do is is try to continue to be a part of that conversation and say that what you do does matter and people are watching. How you show up does matter. And you can either choose to be a force for good and a force multiplier or not. Carrie, this has been an inspiring conversation. I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to us and really encouraged our listeners. Absolutely. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. There you go, JJ. You think you could land the plane? You think you could land the plane (laughs) on an aircraft carrier? No. I don't even (laughs) want to be on an aircraft carrier, let alone land a plane. A lot to learn there. Carrie, we wish you the absolute best. Please come back on when you get a chance. Next week, JJ, we have an explanation of how to create a conspiracy. Now, I'm not talking about a conspiracy about like... uh, Aliens landed or whatever. I mean, like yeah. Hamlet's uncle conspiracy, like the Ooh. taking over the government conspiracy. It's a departure from what we normally do yeah. at StoryBrand. But we have an interview with Ryan Holiday. Yeah, you know Ryan. I mean, he wrote Perennial Seller, and he yep. wrote, you know he's a business guy. But he wrote a book called Conspiracy because he got fascinated by the Peter Thiel Hulk Hogan gawker lawsuit yes and he wrote a book about it isn't that crazy yeah it's an interesting you know departure for him because he actually got fascinated by it and then he wondered if you wanted to not overreact but actually spend five years trying to take somebody down how would you do it what would it look like? Yeah, not mean girl style, but like full no, like on. Peter, like, <laughs> like Peter Thiel wreck a guy's career stuff. Yeah. A little bit of a departure from our podcast, but yeah. I thought it was a fascinating. fascinating book. And I, you know, yeah. Ryan is a good guy. And I just wondered, okay, why'd you do this? Anyway, so we actually went and talked to him. Here's a little tease of next week's interview with Ryan Holiday. To me, the story was an excuse to sort of do an extended meditation on power and strategy and narrative because what Teal did was typically someone does something wrong to us and we just react. And this would have been Teal, you know, litigating Gawker's outing of him or publicly condemning them or as Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker said, you know, why didn't he just write his own op-ed response to us? I think what Teal realized was that you can't beat someone in a battle of words on the terrain of their choosing. And so instead, he was meticulous, he was patient, he probes for weakness, he finds something that Gawker has done wrong, where what they've done is really indefensible, right? And then what I think was so brilliant about what Teal did is that he didn't leave it simply at this lawsuit. He also funds and pursues a number of other lawsuits. When he starts out, Gawker is this sort of rebellious but well-liked counterculture website. But by the end of it, Teal has maneuvered them. He's controlled their narrative better than they have 
into being this sort of bully, this unethical, this exploitative operation that hurts other people, that doesn't play by the rules. And it's by the sort of deliberate maneuvering of Teal that this happens. So by the time they get in that courtroom in Florida, the jury is just appalled at these people and disgusted. And the reason the verdict is so large is that they were trying to send the message. And it was the message that Teal had put in their minds to send. So there you go. Stay. I mean, he knows how to take you down now. We got to be nice to Ryan. We love Ryan. Ryan, do you hear Ryan, that? We great. love. Ryan, you're great. We just believe in you. And we love you. Peter Thiel too. We love. <laughs> and for that I'm, matter, Hulk I'm, Hogan. I was gonna say I'm a Hulkamaniac myself. So. I never got into it. Did you really get into wrestling at one time? I Were did you? actually. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It never happened to me. Yeah, we in junior high we actually created our uh, own little wrestling association in my backyard. So. That, okay, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> we're, okay, I, I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna, we're gonna promise you the JJ Peterson Wrestling Association <laughs> conversation for a future episode. We're gonna follow up on that, JJ. All right, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to land the plane. <laughs>